0: Hello, and welcome to episode number 15 of the Mideo Meet podcast, the monthly music podcast where we talk to a wide range of people in the music world. This month, I'm speaking to Hannah Kemp Welsh, who is a sound artist based in London, and she's been responsible for a huge number of installations, workshops, performances and residencies all relating to sound and sound art. She's just finished a residency at Petals Yard in Cambridge, giving local people a voice on the radio, and she's worked considerably in mental health, which we also speak about. So, I caught up with her earlier this year, and the first question was about her musical beginnings.
1: My big sister had a friend, a Spanish friend called Kitty, um, my big sister was 11 years older than me, so I obviously thought she was the coolest thing in the world. Mm-hmm. And uh, we had this cabinet, and there were some cassette tapes in it. And Kitty used to make my sister mixtapes. And uh, I pulled out this tape of Faith by The Cure, which is possibly, possibly the most depressing album of all time. And I started listening to it when I was maybe 12, 13. And I was really connected. Um, and... You know, that was my first kind of real beginning of sort of obsess- obsession around music. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I guess listening to my big sister's tapes. Um, and then school, kind of finding my tribe through the exchange of tapes, reading music magazines, hiding from everyone else at school in the guitar store cupboard where they would have a cupboard with all these cubby holes mm-hmm. and that's where they kept the guitars and the t- the music teacher was a nice man, would allow all the socially awkward kids to kind of turn a blind eye to the fact that instead of going out and playing, we would sit in there and hide and play guitar badly. That's cool. Um, so yeah, I guess I guess that would be a kind of early memory of getting into music.
0: That's great. And you had like a little a little sort of nice little reflective chamber to play the guitar in
1: there? Yeah. Earlier than that, my dad was quite a melancholy man and uh, he'd play Schubert very passionately on the piano. Wow. Um, As did my sister. She was uh, much older and much cleverer than me, so they used to play piano together. They'd sometimes teach me a bit, so I have a bit of second-hand piano skill. But I think, you know, kind of getting into guitar, being a teenage goth, uh, (laughs) all of that really
0: things off at me. Yeah, and The Cure is a great way to start, isn't it? I think there's a lot of people that once they started listening to The Cure, they never actually ever stopped. I'm, I'm certainly, I feel that like that's the same for me. Yeah, quite dark, quite dark early stuff though, mm. isn't it? I remember I I heard um, Disintegration yeah. and um, I was like, wow, this is like Joy Division, this is great, I love this. <laughs> I thought it was Joy Division, I think I thought it was Joy Division for quite a while. And uh, yeah, great music, amazing stuff. Cool. So, did you did you like study? What did you did you when did you start to sort of study music or sound or those sorts of things?
1: I think I was the first year where they offered a music technology A level at school, and uh, I was I was not a fan of school. I was not good at school, um, but that's something that I got really into. I was the only girl in my class, which was quite a weird experience in some ways, but I enjoyed it. Um, I hadn't considered going to university. Uh, until I realised that you could study music tech at uni uh, I moved to Brighton I wanted to be a DJ when I was 18 I Did just, you? Yeah, I decided that <laughs> My big big aim was to be a free party DJ And start raves in the fields And that was somehow going to be a sustainable life
0: That's a sustainable, yeah that's sustainable. You get pension paid and all that <laughs> <Yeah>. stuff
1: <laughs> Good job security yeah. uh, National insurance Exactly So I think I kind of wised up a little bit When I, when I actually arrived um, and
0: it, it, did you want? Did you uh, want to be a? Dude, did you have decks and stuff? Did you have friends that had decks and vinyl? Like, is that why? Uh, were there like were the DJs that you like aspired to be? Like, what influenced you to want to be that?
1: I think I just really enjoyed the freedom of uh, of rapes. I grew up in the countryside and just being able to be away from the normality of what I felt was quite oppressive society that I didn't understand mm-hmm. you know going out into a field spending all night with bonfire and some blaring music in a forest with a diverse bunch of people was quite a freeing experience and I enjoyed staying up all night and feeling like a radical and feeling like there was some alternative to spending the next 40 years getting a job in a supermarket and that being the kind of end of things yeah yeah, yeah. so it sort of it felt like it offered new possibilities
0: definitely where did you grow up then in Oxfordshire in Oxfordshire right yeah.
1: They had a really amazing rave scene there, <laughs> so they? maybe that was
0: just it. Yeah, I mean, uh, where I'm from in Shropshire as well, it's like farming land, there are no clubs in cities, and it's all about the raves at the weekend, so yeah, what like while I wasn't someone who like got into the debauchery of it, I would still go along and like, yeah, like you say, like a fire with a rave in the middle of nowhere, in a forest, it's, there is an amazing spirit there, and it, it's also a very supportive place. It's very, like, yeah, there were never any trouble, you know? It was never, like, there was never any gang thing. It was always that you were one gang.
1: It was a hippie kind of movement, you know? Peace and love, tunes, bonfires, being at one with nature, being in the forest, respecting the environment. It was kind of like very alternative scouts. <laughs> <laughs> Brownies for rebels. <laughs> yeah. Unsupervised, no authority.
0: <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that's really cool. A little bit like, I guess, like, um, I mean, the rave scene we talk. We, um, so, yeah, today was the day that Keith Flint died. We, um, uh, yeah, the, there's that Prodigy uh, album cover where it opens up and it's like a valley in between the rave and the, and the establishment and society. And they're cutting the bridge between the two. Yeah, it's that, yeah, amazing, amazing spirit of doing that. So you did, you did music tech at college. What sort of things were you, were you doing on music tech? Music tech, then what did they get you doing? It's
1: just really learning some very basic stuff. You know, back then uh, we uh, the the desks weren't digital, so you literally you'd spend. I had to learn MIDI numbers one to one hundred twenty one, and uh, you know, learn which wires to patch into which of the things in the rack, and mm-hmm. you know, just the kind of real techie side of things.
0: Yeah, hands-on stuff. Yeah yeah so you went on to study in Brighton.
1: Yeah and um, it was quite a different feeling there. I was uh, the youngest on my course there were three girls uh, I was one of them the other two had a huge fight in the first term and never spoke to each other again physical fist fight and so again it was a bit of a feeling of isolation mm. and uh,
0: did you play the mediator in that role where did you oh. did you?
1: No, I think no. I just want to be a part of it. <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah I, um, everyone there was quite a lot older than me and they all had established music careers. Mm. I think that I was surprised because I felt that everyone else would be 18 and a kind of beginner as well. But um, there were a lot of mature students on the course and it was very focused on, you know, producing beats, being an electronic musician. And although I sort of enjoyed doing that uh, in my bedroom at home, I didn't necessarily enjoy the kind of formality of lectures about, you know, the kind of how to use Max MSP. And, you know, we had some kind of exercises about, you know, you've got to produce music in different genres. And, Mm -hmm. you know, for some reason, I just, uh, that wasn't the part that grabbed me. What did really grab me, though, was a lady, one of our course tutors did a lecture about uh sound art and i'd never heard of such a thing before my sister's an art historian my mom's an art historian so they both dragged me around museums as a child much to my <laughs> protestations i never really understood what art was about i thought the whole thing was very elitist and bourgeois and it was about being shushed and being silent and staring at something and having to ascend to some new level in order to interpret what was going on in it mm-hmm. always felt a bit dense in those environments and like it wasn't made for me. Yeah. And, uh, and I went to this lecture where our tutor was talking about the Fluxus artists in the 60s and she played us some works where the artists were doing things like smashing busts of Wagner and throwing pianos off ten-story buildings Mm -hmm. and listening to the sounds of, you know, busts being destroyed and pianos disintegrating or smashing into the pavement. And that level of kind of humour and that level of protest against the uh, kind of elitism of art really appealed to me. Um, It felt like... Felt like people were doing something to try and democratize this, uh, this abstract thing, which I'd come to only understand within these very formal contexts, and remove it from that, and instead make it part of the world and make it part of life. Mm-hmm. And I read a book by Alan Capra talking about the blurring of art and life, and I liked that idea that we don't see music or art as something that happens at that happens within formal spaces by uh, artist geniuses who were typically male and white and middle class mm-hmm. from certain areas of the west and instead art was being framed or music was being framed as just listening or just viewing something putting on a new pair of glasses framing something yourself so suddenly it was introduced to this whole new language of the world where just a walk down the street could be a musical composition if you chose to see it that way. Mm -hmm. And that really woke me up and made me feel inspired and interested in the concrete world that I was living in rather than the sort of imagined world in a particular space.
2: Yeah,
0: absolutely. And I think, yeah, sometimes, especially with things like classical performances, there's like a reverence that's required, isn't there? The, the, the musicians are elevated on a stage they're all above you you can't make any noise it's yeah it, it's a very much like an us and them feeling isn't it that sort of that sort of performance
1: Absolutely. That whole division between the artist genius and the humble audience, the audience being the people who have to absorb the message that the genius gives you, you know, mm. with limited autonomy for interpretation and someone to kind of, you know, the gallery interpretation text or the museum programme being there to correct you if your interpretation <laughs> Yeah,
0: right. yeah, Yeah, yeah. What you felt about that was <laughs> wrong, actually. <Yeah.
2: laughs>
1: you know, and I know that not all, not all institutions are like this. It's just my initial experiences of them growing up and mm-hmm. I felt very outside of that and I liked the idea that anyone or anything could potentially be an art experience and that art was an experience and not a product. Mm-hmm. I didn't like the whole idea of, uh, you know, the kind of marketable, saleable value of music and art. I didn't feel like a very uh, business-minded person maybe and, I f- you know, was very much of the kind of opinion that value was... Uh, value was about the experience you take from something and not about a price tag. I sometimes facetiously want to say that as an artist I don't really have anything to say which is why I do community or socially engaged practice which isn't quite true. Mm -hmm. I just think that the role of the artist for me is much more about listening than about talking and telling um, or even showing Mm -hmm. and so I like to meet people, listen to people, observe things and then try and construct something from that. Um, and one of the sort of strategies that I like to use is uh, kind of text-based or instructional scores, just like these Fluxus artists in the 60s used, where instead of creating something, they... Uh, write down a suggestion or a proposition for what an art experience could be or how to have one. Mm-hmm. So, you know, some of my favourite artists wrote things like build a fire and listen to it until the fire goes out. And that seemed to me to be a really magical That's way really to cool. view art or to view sound and music.
2: Yeah,
0: and from the uh, beginning. Yeah, like that sound really does progress, doesn't mm-hmm. it? Like when you're making a fire and you have you put the big log on the fire and you hear that crack for the first time and it's drying out, like that's a big moment. Yeah, yeah.
1: And it doesn't have to be a kind of, uh, you know, pensive experience where you're sort of intensely focusing on something, and stroking your beard. Mm. <laughs> yes, oh, yeah. I see what it's done there. <laughs> it can just be sort of thinking about the way in which you live your life and what brings you pleasure and enjoyment in it. Um, rather than seeking outside of that.
0: Yeah, what, what immediately came to mind when I read that, about um, what you said, was um, Brian Eno, um, he did a talk at the British Library a couple of years ago, which I went to, and he said he did this, um, he said he did this installation, which totally, like, I was so impressed by it as an idea. So he had, um, he had, like, ten different hi-fis all around the room, each of them playing a CD, by just standing in the room, and it's such a simple idea. I was like, "Yeah, like you, you become like the mix engineer of 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 that art. Like you're you're making that art for yourself." I thought that was such a cool idea. So simple.
1: Absolutely, he has slightly ripped off, I reckon, John Cage there. Who oh, has he? <laughs> <laughs> he? He John Cage used to do these uh, events at Black Mountain College with some of the other and sixties radical artists of the day and, you know, from diverse disciplines. They used to do this thing called Music Circus where mm. they would invite people to come to this event where suddenly they would have a circus performance going on above you and uh, four different orchestras all playing different things in the room and, you know, you kind of create your own experience of the event by wandering between events and yeah, interacting wow. with them in different ways.
0: That's incredible. What's it called?
1: Music Circus. Music
0: Circus, something like that.
1: Black Mountain College. Everything is the derivative of everything else at this stage. Yeah,
0: I'm pretty sure he did say <laughs> that was one of his. I could have crossed <laughs> it over with something else he said, so I wouldn't want to. I wouldn't want to get Brian you no know, wrong. <laughs> Can you explain what the Fluxus experience is? Like, what what is that?
1: Yeah, so um, I became really interested in the idea of art as part of life and uh, creating kind of sonic happenings. One of the favourite sort of fluster stories of mine is when they wrote to all the curators in New York and told them that this very exciting art event was going to be taking place and uh, they had to book coach tickets. So. They got this coach full of curators and then they drove them all into the forest and then they gave them torches and led them into the forest and said the art experience is about to happen here and then mm-hmm. they left them in a clearing and then they ran away with bus <laughs> and so the art experience was the experience of all of these curators trying desperately to find their way from upstate New, New York through the forest back home <laughs> <Wow>. you know <laughs> and and that's it isn't it it's uh, Art is a part of life. It's about how you live. Mm. Um, and so the Flux is experience or the Flux is practice. Some people call it a movement, but I don't think that's right. Is about thinking about the sounds that we surround ourselves with, thinking about the beauty in design, in um, cooking, in all the... or well, thinking about the way in which we live and how all of these activities can be a creative practice, which can give insight into... Uh, how we connect as humans Alison Knowles made lots of pieces where she would observe how different people make and eat a salad or how uh, the sound of rubbing Nivea cream on your fingers sounds and this to her was art Mm -hmm. and so my dissertation was about uh, people who had a similar ethos to art and sound making now and linking how technology has developed or expanded that practice in new ways I found this amazing collective of sort of musicians and sound artists, sound artists, sort of experimental musicians in Brighton called The Spirit of Gravity. Oh, yeah? And they were very influential when I was uh, 18 to 20. I think they gave me their first ever CD because I wrote about them in my dissertation. Did you really? Yeah. I wrote, um, I went along to some of their events and they would do things like, sitar bingo, where there would just be a man playing sitar, and we were all given bingo cards, and he would do these absolutely absurd bingo calls. There was only four of us in the entire theatre, you know, Um, or someone made a, turned their vacuum cleaner into a bass guitar, you know, so it was about kind of these sort of playful interactions with everyday objects and everyday societal conventions, poking fun at them, and performing them as sort of absurdist art but also as a kind of experience where we're all sharing in the comedic value together but also listening as a practice
0: absolutely um i help out at spirit of gravity now (laughs) so i know it really really well but it's such a great night isn't it it's so good i've spent many a time there and um just listened to to people whatever they're doing like sound art there's people with yeah like you say there's all kinds of things um a a tin can with an elastic band on it that's mic'd up or you know someone with a trombone that's broken and they're dropping knives into it or you know all kinds of amazing stuff um yeah i love going to those nights and jeff who runs it was it jeff that was running it then i love that guy he's such a great guy
1: he is absolutely and what an amazing name he has jeff cheese master (laughs)
0: the Cool, that's great. And did you enjoy your time in Brighton? I guess you had a lot of fun there.
1: I did. Yeah, I spent more time at the Vox than I did at uni, and lots of time hanging out and listening to Spirit of Gravity Weirdness. (laughs) It was great. I'll
0: tell you something that was really good at Spirit of Gravity. I heard recently was um, these people who they called themselves Electronic Sound Pictures, and they each had a deck, a record deck, and one of them had like a chaos pad. Another one had, you know, they had like weird effects as well as their deck. And they were just mixing together like uh, old records of people talking or like farmyard animals or news reports and like playing them backwards and, you know, like messing around, putting phases on them and stuff. And it was really great. It was a real amazing tapestry of all these influences and all these worldly happenings just flashing by and then disappearing. Yeah, it was really good. Cool. So you went on then to do a master's in sound art?
1: I did. I think, yeah. you know, the main motivation was I was not ready to get a job yet. <laughs> um, yeah, I went up to, I came up to London and I did this master's at Chrisette. Um And they spoke about sound art quite differently to how they did in Brighton. Right. They kind of almost looked at a different school um, within the, the kind of theoretical frameworks. And... Um, there was a big focus on listening and how we listen, lots of different modules on um, building installations, curating. So yeah, it's quite an intensive learning year. Um, But, you know, the best thing that you get from any life experience is people. And that was uh, a place where I met uh, uh, a girl, basically, who I've been collaborating with ever since. And that relationship that creative relationship of kind of mutual support and development um, was really the thing that has made me continue to make art I think a lot of people kind of post art school or music experiences you know it takes a lot to sort of have that confidence in your own creative voice and when you're first starting out, you're not going to be great. You know, you're just starting out. <laughs> and it's got to be okay to be wrong and to make bad art. That has to be okay. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. But how do you know if you're making bad art? And sometimes the horrible fear of making bad art, bad art, not knowing if it is bad art. <laughs> yeah, not, that's right. stop random. you from yeah. making anything. <laughs> yeah, know? exactly. So being having someone whom it felt safe to discuss ideas with, where there was a mutual uh understanding and where we could critically reflect back and develop ideas was uh you know really why i kind of continued
0: brilliant and is that lisa yeah what's her name lisa hall lisa hall that's it yeah i we i I believe you were sitting on a a sofa together singing about tall people is that her
1: no that's Ruth. is
0: that someone else
1: yeah my oldest friend okay
0: Uh, cool okay so um that that's yeah, I mean fusing those sorts of friendships and bonds is amazing, isn't it? For you know, that's sometimes why you you end up going on those courses not really for the piece of paper or, or anything. So what have you worked what have you worked with Lisa? What have you worked on with Lisa?
1: Oh, we did a range of things. I think you know, one of the earliest things that we did, which uh, you know, who knows if that was a success or failure, but it was good for our development. We read a, some philosophy and we decided that we wanted to make a in response to this Kierkegaard proposition that you have two choices in life you can either live a life of morality or you can live a life of pleasure Mm -hmm. so we tried to make a piece which was about exploring these two opposites and we found lots of different texts which we felt exemplified the kind of polarity of the positions that we take reflected in politics, in urban planning, in debates and we pitched these propositions against each other and use different sounds and voices to represent them, and then I think we set up some. it kind of had a chance operations procedure going on with some playing cards and some makey makeys where you could kind of touch and interact with the different positions. Whether or not that was comprehensible to anyone else, that's what we were doing. Mm-hmm. I don't know, you know. And I think that probably our future works were much more developed in terms of keeping things simple mm. and not, you know, getting too involved with. Uh, you know we don't have to have a flawless concept as long as it's something that is more understandable to uh, to your audience perhaps Yeah. but it was certainly a fun project to develop together that was the first thing I think we did.
0: That's cool that was either or wasn't it? Yes. I've got that on the on new performances and was that, was that like an interactive thing? Did people what did people see when they turned up there for example when they saw it what, what happened? We
1: did a few different iterations of it we did it as a performance we did it as a kind of sort of thing that you could come and play with or touch or read and we recorded it as well so you know it was a kind of in flux work that we were experimenting and testing new strategies with
0: cool yeah you have quite a lot of um you've worked with a tremendous number of people um really incredible establishments here in london and and beyond um, yeah maybe that I mean yeah you did a master's on sonic happenings descent and destruction
1: mm-hmm.
0: yeah can you describe what that was about?
1: Uh, what did I write about ten years ago for a three month period? Yeah. <laughs> I'm not sure if I can remember. It was uh, I think it was continuing this sort of uh, infatuation that I had or well that that, that trivializes my feelings towards fluxus the deep passion and love that I feel about fluxus practice and um, that it was thinking more about um uh, in a kind of more expansive sense it did a uh, kind of lists of different of ten different art pieces where people had destroyed a piano and then why, why the piano, why is the piano seen as this bourgeois symbol. Mm-hmm. Um and it was kind of it it probed more, I guess, why we destroy, uh, and what that symbolises and how uh it was again a kind of focus on sort of sixties, seventies art. Um and I guess that period because you know, that was a a real sort of fusion of interdisciplinary practices all coming together there, where it wasn't, you know, it didn't feel so much like different art forms were categorised into, you know, this is what music is now, and people were uh, working with artists of all disciplines, and that was something that was really exciting to me. Definitely, definitely.
0: And uh, also, I guess, dissent, sort of anti-establishment, Define conventions a little bit, like define what musical conventions are, like defying who the audience is.
1: Yeah, smashing some of the Viennese traditions that I guess lots of these artists felt had been uh, holding them back for too long. It's a great Fluxus story about how uh, some of the Fluxus artists performed as part of the Stockhausen piece, and some of some other Fluxus artists protested with picket signs outside the concert hall where it was taking place, and then some of the front artists who were performing in it midway through the performance left mm-hmm. and started to it against oh, it. So, yeah. you know, this kind of uh, desire to protest, but also to be part of, you know, and the kind of duality of that in some ways. Um, but also, I guess I was thinking a bit about uh, the Eastern Bloc and how, uh, you know, in days of communism there were different kind of constraints puts on artists and how artists collaborated across communities and across uh countries where there were restrictions on travels and visas so mm-hmm. looked at male art um and uh, uh people who were living in communities out and not being funded by formal institutions um but instead you know people even radically abandoning Uh, the use of money and reverting to bartering systems and you know communes and yeah those kinds of things
0: yeah self-supporting stuff
1: yeah
2: that's really cool
0: how did you go about sort of entering into the real world out of education?
1: Uh, I I went along to a sound art event at a gallery. I looked for the most stressed person <laughs> there and I offered to volunteer. He was extremely grateful mm-hmm. and uh, then I ended up uh, working there for quite a while um, a kind of paid assistant, intern, something along those lines, uh, and helping to uh, make sound art festival happen over a few weeks. And then after that, I... After all before, I can't remember, I moved to Poland for a bit, and my grandma lived. I worked as a curatorial assistant in a gallery on a, um, an exhibition about the Polish Experimental Animation Studio. Mm, yeah. And so I learned a bit about curatorial practice and transferring exhibitions, archiving. Um, then I worked for, did some other internships and galleries in London, uh, interned at Tate in a digital learning team, wrote a bit for their website about sound art, and then I got a job at Tate and worked for five years in their learning team.
0: That's incredible, mm. that's an incredible place to have got a job, and, and yeah, what an incredible experience that must have been.
1: It was, absolutely, you know, just to kind of, uh, this all sounds very great and privileged, so just to let you know that at the same time, I was spending every evening and weekend waitressing at Hampstead Weddings, which was the most appalling job <laughs> I've ever had, just going on replay to wedding, after wedding, after wedding, which all looked the same, it was the most bizarre experience, and I lived in a youth hostel. Um wow, and, yeah, and lived no, off no. Pratt sandwiches, what's going to take every day. Um, but yeah, it was it was an amazing job. I felt very different and separate from a lot of the other people there. But I think that uh, the learning team was just the most amazing medical team. Um, and they really value diversity within their workforce. At least that team certainly does. And they are very welcoming to new approaches and ideas. And I think I was probably quite... Uh, um, unsocialized maybe mm-hmm. <laughs> for the kind of gallery and office environment when they first arrived and uh, you know I think it was a process of mu- mutual learning there where I think I calmed down a bit but I think that they got a bit more radical as well I hope
0: <laughs> <laughs> and part of that job am I right is that um, you were trying to get 18 to 25 year old, more 18 to 25 year olds into museums
1: Yeah, 15 to 25 year olds, but also different kinds of 15 to 25 year olds. You know, we were looking around Tate Britain we were like, wow, you know, everyone here is very white, very middle-aged and very middle-class. Mm. And, uh, you know, we're not just talking about getting their kids to come, we're talking about, you know, what, what are the South London youth doing? Yeah. And you know, why do the people who live on the council stage, just 10 minutes down the road from Tate Modern, never come to the gallery, why don't they feel there's anything there for them? Mm. So it was about diversity, it was about relevance, it was about cultural production, and it was about welcoming people into the gallery not just as a kind of tokenistic gesture of you are also allowed here mm, for, a, for a moment <laughs> for a moment, <laughs> but under certain rules and conditions but about saying to communities what would you like to see in here uh, you know this box is funded by you as well what would you like to put in our box you know mm. and uh, what kind of events uh, would be of interest and in, and what would you like to see how can we reflect back the diversity of london within these walls
0: right and how did you do that how did that how did that I mean, that's lovely, that's a great sentiment, like, but yeah, how did you do that in practice? What did you do to open the doors yeah. for, for everybody?
1: So there's um, the young people's programmes that Tate Britain and Tate Modern operates a model called peer-led practice, where they have a group of young people which are recruited through local schools, through youth clubs, through partnership projects, so... Uh, Youth sector partners might focus specifically on working with people with special educational needs or people, young people with mental health issues or um, uh, different kinds of schools. And so they'd bring young people together and invite them to curate events as a kind of Friday late for their peers. And uh, you know, that would mean that you'd get Grime Gig and Militate Britain, Um, but it also meant that, you know, kind of new sort of creative practice and began to filter through the tape so it would always extend you know beyond just the young people's programs team throughout learning and then start seeping through front of house and you know curatorial teams and you know it was about influencing the program of the gallery in a wider sense not just about having these moments i guess it's about building a mutually beneficial partnership with different organizations And not using young people as a kind of bartering chip where, you know, we need young people for our stats to report to Arts Council, which is how we justify spending 3.6 billion of, you know, public money on this old world painting. You know, you guys have got young people and you guys don't have any resource or money to do anything with these young people, so you can bring them here and we'll run a project, you know. Not Mm -hmm. see young people as chips in an exchange, but really think about, um, you know, building a sort of long-lasting mutual exchange where young people can influence and change and grow and learn um, and socialise. And I think the social aspect of belonging to a, a group or community uh, is really key to any of these encounters. And, you know, like my experience at uni, I took away a friend. You know, maybe the thing that some of the young people take away is that they have been given space to be creative together and to work on something with a degree of autonomy. Yeah, and through that you can build some lasting relationships.
0: Definitely, uh, and and I think I you know having worked with neat kids myself in the past, sometimes just listening to what they've got to say, or listening, or like giving them encouragement is something that they're not accustomed to doing, or they're slightly it's an alien experience. So yeah, like seeing the seeing the effect of, of a really great workshop, um, it's an amazing thing, isn't it? Yeah, it's good. It's good fun good I enjoy doing that sort of stuff I'd like to ask you about remixing the news that was one thing that was mentioned I just want to ask how what that was about I just like captured my imagination that one what did you do for that
1: oh it was a collab with three of my colleagues actually we um it was funny we We wanted to do a project together but we all come from such different disciplines and within the constrictions of doing a drop-in event at a late late events have like seven thousand people come Mm -hmm. (laughs) so how do you do a workshop for seven thousand people you know there were four of us and so we each thought about the different interests that we have within our practice that could potentially work and you know we had uh, some illustrators graphic designers i work with sound and so we thought about the kind of links within our practice that could potentially uh, come together i think there was a theme that we were responding to to the late like that that month i can't remember what it was so and we decided you know i got really interested in that time about language and the language that we use and how uh, different narratives are given to us by the media and maybe probing or challenging that language. Mm-hmm. I was looking particularly at stats at that time and how, you know, well, um, I think it was around Brexit time. I can't remember exactly, but stats were being used. So <laughs> what this time is going to be known though. as? Brexit time. <laughs> yeah, of course, a very long time. Isn't yeah, it's it? quite a while. Yeah. yeah. But yeah, I was looking at how you know newspapers are putting out these shock messages and stats can be used to prove absolutely anything you like now. You know? and we've mm. absolutely lost faith in experts in our news media and everything else. So we were inviting people to come make their own newspapers using cut-out pie charts and stats. That's and brilliant. Designed surveys that you could do and all kinds of things.
0: That's really cool. That's a really great idea because the amount of people that... I mean you know there's a certain amount of people that love the news and that they they you know they follow it to the letter and they believe every word of it and then there's like everyone else who's like 75 percent of the population that know that it's like corporate agendas most of the time and it has no bearing on any of our lives what they're talking about really apart from like selling arms somewhere or like dropping arms somewhere you know? like a true
1: left
0: <laughs> <laughs> So yeah um, that's a great idea to remix it and actually say like what your what is your news what's the like the real news what's really happening That's cool because I I envisage that to be something a bit like cassette boy where they like chop the news together I was thinking wow I wonder how you remix the news at a workshop but yeah, that's really cool just actually creating the news that's brilliant. Do you know a guy called Trevor Cox? Have you heard of oh, yeah. man, Trevor Cox? Yeah,
1: yeah, yeah. I went to see. Um, he did uh, something with Chris Watson. They created a beautiful film together. I think it was screen tape. Did I imagine that? Did that happen?
0: I yeah. Chris Watson does all the recording for yeah. Attenborough, doesn't he? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I don't know. Yeah, I would don't know that, of that piece, but um, yeah, he's a great guy. He wrote a book called Sonic Wonderland, mm-hmm. which is about um, like Sonic happenings in different countries and around the world and places you can go and uh hear like the longest reverb tale known to man and all that sort of thing it's really 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 cool guy um but yeah chris watson equally um i went to an installation of his at the attenborough center in brighton and it was like a journey around the oceans and um it was it was meant to be 45 minutes long but everyone who i know went we all felt like it was about five minutes I think everyone fell asleep. It was so relaxing. It was just like speakers everywhere all around. And there was just cushions to lie down. And it was um, started off on Brighton Beach, like the seagulls and the sea flowing. And then it just went all around the world in the oceans. Yeah, it was really immersive. It was, it was like surround speakers that were real, you know, high fidelity. So it really felt like when you heard a whale, it was right there. But yeah, I do recommend that book, Sonic Wonderland. It's really... Really interesting. You are a resident at Cattle Yard in Cambridge, is that, is that right?
1: Yeah, coming to an end actually this month. I've been um, at Cattle Yard as artist in residence for a year. And the brief there was to create new work in collaboration with North Cambridge communities. Cambridge um, was well. There was a Center for Cities report published, saying that Cambridge is the most unequal uh, um, city in the whole of the UK. And some of the factors that they attributed to that is how Cambridge is Silicon Fen and Cambridge is a huge digital hub of technologies where they have tech tech companies with Apple and ARM and Amazon and all kinds of others. And so they bring in digital workers from all over the world and local people don't get those kinds of jobs. There's low social mobility in North and East Cambridge. So Mm. um, there's uh, some real impoverished communities in North Cambridge. And my brief was to work with some community groups and see what artwork we could make together.
0: Excellent. That's wicked. So what did what what did you what did you come up with? What
1: I became really interested. I did a bit of local history searching and I learned about um, a garden shed in which two men in the 1890s I think were tinkering around with scientific instruments and they made some inventions which grew into a company which was absolutely massive and had its kind of heyday in the 50s, 70s, selling uh, radios, telecommunication products, um, did lots of work in the war as well with radio communications. And they were a massive local employer. And I dug through all these archives where I'd find uh, adverts for technology or engineer apprenticeships where local young people would have an opportunity to go to college and get an education, but at the same time get paid. um, And they would have uh, kind of uh, tech uh, or electronics engineering jobs in this company. And actually lots of people who live in Cambridge are retired employees of the Pi Group, this company. So I was really enchanted by this idea of these two men in Uh, the kind of social aspect of tech companies as they were then and how they uh, had these values of employing local people, and that's just how things were done. I don't know if that's because they were a particular source for social good or if that's just because that's how the economy was before globalised, kind of digital work and movements of labour and things like that. So I thought a lot about... um, the legacy that this company had left behind, particularly through their work in radio, and I thought about community radio stations, and how most communities will have a community radio station, but the community radio station doesn't often feel very representative of the community. Mm-hmm. It's usually two or three volunteers who run this, this sta- who run these stations, who are very particular personality types. You know, who are the kind of media savvy, good talkers, interested in tech usually quite affluent if they've got time to volunteer or they don't have to work
2: mm-hmm.
1: um, and so I started a project which I called Hyperlocal Radio which was about training up people in radio skills to be able to create their own radio shows whether or not that's a abstract, exquisite, quartz type sound art piece or whether or not that's quite a formal music radio show
2: mm-hmm.
1: and to, so we went round care homes, uh, primary schools um, uh, community arts groups uh, and we ran a whole load of workshops and created a big series of audio pieces and then we took over the local radio station for a day and played them and now we have an exhibition which opens next week which will be both in the community and at Kettle's Yard which is a collection of these works
0: That's incredible and it's sort of like the unheard voices of people, isn't it? You know, the people that are living their lives that that you know, it matters as equally as the people we hear or we're exposed to on a daily basis. Did they enjoy I guess they enjoyed being part of that as well?
1: I think so. I don't know if they enjoyed it more than they would do if I had run a football club. But I <laughs> you know, I felt feel like we built something together and I, you know, offered something which was a bit different. Hmm. So Um, And again, you know, I met some absolutely amazing people. I met a man who does what I like to call social care karaoke. So he's an amazing rock and roll singer. It's a band in the sound like the kind of 60s, 70s. And he does, uh, he he sings things like Sweet Caroline. And he uh, very much believes in the power of music to bring people together. And so Mm -hmm. despite the fact that he's, you know, of later retirement years himself, he carries his karaoke equipment round Cambridge care homes and different centres and sings and passes the mic around and creates an inclusive environment for people to enjoy being together with music. Mm,
0: That's brilliant isn't it? Like those people are the pillars of society, like you need those people who, the people who give everything for everyone else. Yeah, that's really really cool. Yeah, and I mean there, there are a lot of projects I've written down sort of um loads of things that you've worked on. Um, I one thing that I loved was the anti work performance. I just thought that was so funny. And I think anyone who anyone who listens to what that's about would have hysterics like with their own emails if so yeah, what was the idea behind that? Yeah,
1: behind I, went, that I went to Zurich for which is a kind of performance art festival. And uh, they have a venue in Zurich called the Cabaret Voltaire, which is the birthplace of Dada and an important art historic building. And uh, the rules at the Cabaret Voltaire is you can't watch a performance unless you perform yourself. And um, I was reading a lot of anti-work theory, which was... And thinking a lot about the nature of work, particularly, I think, because of where I was. You know, Zurich is a place which is just... Everything about it smells like money, you know. And um, I was on my way home. Oh, yeah, it's in Switzerland, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah, of course. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> but it just, you know, walking down any street felt like I was on a different planet. It's like being in the city at all times. Mm-hmm. Uh, very beautiful there as well, and lakes and nature and, you know, free swimmings you know, got the same kind of city divides between rich and poor as other places. But as someone who isn't a local resident and isn't familiar with all the, you know, community hotspots, that was very much the view that I was getting of it. Mm-hmm. And um, so I was thinking about the nature of work and morality and really actually had a bit of a meltdown after reading quite a, a, an intense period of reading a lot of anti-work theory by Bob Black <laughs> and David Gruber and automation and the future of jobs. And, you know, I was really starting to feel increasingly depressed about the fact that actually we have to, we've set up a society in which we create we perpetually create more work and worse working conditions and worse pay uh, so that we continue to pressure people into consuming more in a way which is completely environmentally disastrous and totally unnecessary. You know, and how we throw (laughs) 80% of all clothes ever made into the sea and um we live our lives in this constant world where you can't even walk down the street without having uh big billboards trying to sell you stuff and you know voices in your ear in the supermarket on the radio trying to sell you stuff and just being constantly and continuously bombarded by capitalism everywhere you go relentlessly you cannot get away and uh you know the the horrors of this. Really, I think on that particular trip were really compounded within me. Mm-hmm. Um, so, but it's all
0: totally valid. Like that's that's absolutely what is happening. And and uh, yeah, more and more so with the rise of the internet. You know that pressure is even greater with your leisure time now. That's being monitored. That's being yeah uh, commodified, isn't it? Like just social interaction between friends is now sold as data which will eventually sell you something else down the line so it's totally valid like I totally agree with you it's not something yeah
1: agreed and even this word leisure is so highly problematic now because you know I don't have that much fun in my leisure time I'm just basically trying to I'm exhausted from work I'm collapsing you know zoning out and <laughs> staring in the corner of my room or trying to desperately recoup enough energy to go back to work yeah you know? yeah a <laughs> like, lot of
0: people in that situation for absolutely. sure absolutely yeah
1: I was reading, you know, Bob Black's books about the Industrial Revolution and how, you know, suddenly we, you know, everything before had to be made by hand, by individuals. And suddenly we have machines which can produce all these things. But that surely should have meant that everyone who previously had to work 11 hours a day, you know, to produce the amount of, you know, pens or pins or whatever it is needed for, to serve all the surrounding communities and export elsewhere, they should all have suddenly had their working hours drastically reduced you know, and their pay could have stayed the same because actually the business owners uh you know, said the business owners' profits increased exponentially. Uh, you know, pay didn't go up. Instead, people had to continue to work the same hours. But suddenly, we had, you know, way more of all of the commodities than would ever need to humanly produce, be produced forever, you're still being produced, and so instead of reducing work because of the invention of machines, we basically make people have to work longer and harder to compete with the machines, which is an absurd way of structuring society, but of course everything is unfortunately driven by the powers that be, of course, with thinking about money and not about, uh, you know, other values of how we can live in a way which is going to make us feel happy and fulfilled.
0: Definitely. Definitely, yeah, So the and, and the anti-work was, so that was, re- it was 50, your last 50 emails.
1: Yeah, and they were so boring, <laughs> <laughs> the last 50 emails were so boring, I read out the 50, like, 50 emails that I'd last sent, you know, and they ranged from, thank you, noted, I will action that <laughs> ASAP, <laughs> to <laughs> complaining about my job, <laughs> you know, but um, just the futility of the sheer volume of work-related communication that we send out um, and looking at the layers of bureaucracy that we've created. You know, most of us now work in essentially what is middle management Mm -hmm. (laughs) because we've had to create huge swathes of new kinds of roles where, you know, we oversee people overseeing things and overseeing things. You know, we have layers of hierarchies of decision-makers which actually, you know, we could probably delete all these jobs. You could delete my job. You know, I don't think that no one would die if my job didn't exist. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it's interesting to think in that way sometimes, you know. Definitely. When the revolution comes, or I think Douglas Adams writes in one of his books that he packs a spaceship full of... All of the, you know, uh, executive, marketing, assistants, etc. Puts them in a spaceship and sends them off into a burning planet. Because actually they're not adding any value to society. Everyone who works in advertising, for example. They're ruining they're us, psychologically. Negative just, social value.
0: Yeah, they're just destroying everyone's, like, peace of mind, state of mind. all Everything that you fear is being played upon mm. to, to make you scared and buy stuff. Yeah. A really good example of that is um, in Brazil. So I lived I lived in Brazil in 2011, and there's a documentary which was made by a British uh, documentary maker called Beyond Citizen Kane, and it's about this media corporation that uh, was, was basically in total control in Brazil, and it still is to this day. Hedge Globo, they're huge. Like, they own everything. So what they would deliberately do on their on their television programs was they would well they'd first of all ensure that there was enough electricity going to the favelas so that people could have televisions that that was one of their priorities so make sure there's enough electricity to suppose have televisions make the television an aspirational thing where even if you're in a favela and you have like no money you still have a TV like they made you know like that was a such a desirable item a bit like it, it sort of It's not like that now here, but maybe in the nineties, it was like, yeah, we got a big TV. Do you remember? Like everyone would like, you thought that was great. Um, But what they would do is they would make sure that they show between programs, aside from what the content of the programs themselves were, um, that advertising in between them would always be for products that were way above what anyone was able to afford, in order to just have aspirate, just so they have aspirations of like they're just totally we're nothing here we can't afford that look at that car we can't get it and then the TV programme comes back and it's yeah it's re- just really destroying people deliberately it was so strange
1: how horrible yeah, yeah.
0: like th- that's actually designed yeah so th- then this documentary um, Beyond Citizen Kane was made by a British documentary maker on Channel 4 but it basically got deleted it was made in the 90s and it got Just tucked under. And there's lots of really established and well-respected, like, Brazilian musicians, like um, uh, Gilberto Gil, and uh, lots of, like, prominent musicians who are literally on that documentary speaking out about Hedja Globo, and the whole thing got um, swiped under. But there is a Portuguese dubbed version on the internet, and um, I think it has subtitles. It's really interesting. I'd
1: love to watch
0: that. It sounds great. It's really good. Yeah, it's it's dark. dark.
1: It's interesting to think about, you know, how we distribute messages or alternative messages in a time where our media is you know no longer trustworthy because it's in the pockets owned by very few people Sudo is a Brazilian artist I had an interesting ways of doing it where he printed the names of the dead on banknotes and then put the money back into circulation. You know, the people who had been disappeared by the jaunta. Yeah, really. And uh, he also wrote uh, instructions for how to create a Molotov cocktail on Coca-Cola bottles. So, you know, using all of the items of capitalism and consumerism and then, you know, printing these items and putting them back in mass circulation to get this message out to people, because that was the only, you know, that was a a means of doing so, hijacking the existing system.
0: Uh, You also did one called Fractal Meat, which I like the sound, the name of.
1: Frat told me it's a radio show by Graham Dunning. Oh, I a sound artist and he okay. invited me to do a guest feature for an hour he um, uh, has l- it's on NTS radio it's uh, sometime in the m- in it's quite late at night I can't remember what day of the week and mm-hmm. um, but it's a uh, it's a kind of space for experimental music and sound art and uh, I was on it for an hour and I think that I went through all my favourite sounds, uh, all my, all my favourite sound art pieces. So
0: Great, what um, was in there? What did you select?
1: I uh, had some of the dialer poets, so there was a group of artists, again, 60s artists, who had a phone line, and you could ring up the phone line and they would tell you a poem. Really? Uh, so I thought that was lovely. Um That's I had cool. some, what did I have on there? Oh, I had some... <laughs> Uh, ben Votier, Fluxus Music, where he gave propositions for how you can make music in line with the Fluxus values, i.e. throwing records out the window or just <laughs> singing one song. Um, and yes, yeah, Sound Up was Soul.
0: That's cool. Um, and Graham Dunning is known for his mechanical techno thing, um, but lots of other things too. I think he's been involved with... Um, I'm sure he's played Spirit of Gravity at some point because I yeah. think everyone has played Spirit of Gravity <laughs> at some point. I've
1: not yet played Spirit. You of Gravity. You haven't played? No, oh, come on. I need to. Yes, yeah, so yeah, up on. Jeff one day.
0: Yeah, I'm going to see him in a couple of days. I'll mention your name. <laughs> and Splitting the Atom as well was another one that's. Um, yeah,
1: the Royal right Aldea.
0: which is which is also a lot of fun, mm-hmm. and I don't know if you know Fort Process. Yeah, I was which there. Is in New Haven. Yeah,
1: and the time before as well. Great fun.
0: Yeah, really diverse. Um... 2016 was good because it didn't rain so much yeah. <laughs> yeah but um yeah great festival isn't it oh
1: that's amazing my fave
0: yeah we were running around there uh, yeah we're having a lot of fun this year um what did you was there anything that stood out for you at fort process like when when you've been there', is there any Thing that you... Oh, just
1: the space is so amazing, you know, being kind of down in these subterranean tunnels and these weird kind of war rooms as well, um, <laughs> very anti-war and military, and so it's interesting to see kind of museums where they talk about defence mm. uh, and subjects, which I find quite controversial. But uh, I saw... I can't remember who this was by, opened these drawers of this cabinet and inside each drawer there was the sound of the wind. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I, I saw that, I really saw that one, yeah, 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 was that lovely. was down in the tunnels yeah.
0: area, wasn't it? Yeah, that was cool. That stuck out. Yeah, my friend Jason had, a, had um, two things there uh, this year, was it last year? Um, he had a Tesla coil that you could play on a keyboard,
1: That's really- oh, which yeah. he was super proud
0: of, he yeah. loved it. Uh, and it, and then the thing in the room next door was this like LED noise box. Which I absolutely loved. I could have stayed in there all day because I love drones. Um, so, yeah, he's, he's a really talented guy um, who does lots of really cool stuff. Are you still good to talk about? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Long? I okay. can talk about sound
1: art endlessly. Oh, can you? Do you think, is,
0: is it music? Do you, what do you. Oh, do God. Can like, is that music? Is it soundscape music?
1: Mm, I don't know. I don't really like the word music. No. I'm bored of music. <laughs> <laughs> music can go away. I just want to listen to sounds now, do you know what I mean? The music feels quite limiting and it's got so much baggage, you know? God, music! You know? <laughs> <laughs> so many preconceptions, you know? It's like sound art almost escapes that a little bit and can redefine itself, but on the other hand, sound, sound art can, you know, also be hijacked by the academics, you know, who do want to talk about theoretical practices till cows. Come home, like mm. down, falling sleep, etc. Yeah, yeah. And, uh, but uh, you know, it makes makes sense as a term for me. Sounds art somewhere in between.
0: <laughs> uh, yeah, I love the space of uh, the space that you have with 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 things like that, where it's like soundscapes and or, or like yeah, found sound and stuff like that. I think there's a lot more space to think and connect yourself to those sounds than there is with like house music or drum and bass. You know, it doesn't feel like part of you uh, so much, you know, but yeah, when, when I listen to soundscapes or like ambient music, um, you get a reflection, a time for reflection and and thought that you don't get with music, I find.
1: Maybe, but maybe that's because soundscapes, some soundscapes are so boring that you actually can't find out. I think. just thinking about the washing actually yeah, yeah. <laughs> 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 a lot of space on my mind <laughs> nothing's going on here yeah um yeah i don't know some of it is music some of it is art some of it is sound some of it's sound art um i think that we shouldn't be too precious about these terms and uh people should self-define whatever they think i go for sound art because for me the work that I make is about the ideas. Often the execution is a bit shit, which mm-hmm. is fine with me because it's not about, you know, producing something which is perfectly mastered. It's about being out there in the world and connecting with other humans and talking about things. and um, I use the voice a lot in my work. And then um, also I think showing up in an impoverished community with a two-ground sound recorder is just, you know, doesn't say the, the right thing. is isn't really practicing the values that you're trying to bring out in the work. So I try and be inclusive, hand out cheap recorders to other people to record, uh, you know, networks works collaboratively uh, and engage with, instead of trying to frame things as culture, going and asking people what their cultural production looks like that their existing practice. Because um, there's a lot to be found out there.
0: Definitely. Absolutely. And... Um When you really listen to sound, you you can find beauty in like the most simple sound, can't you? Like even pitching them up and down as well, you know, like a a simple sound pitched to get bass frequencies out of it and things like that. I just just find that stuff amazing, playing things backwards,
2: yeah.
1: Absolutely, but I also think that some of these practices are much more fun to do than to listen to. You know, I can't tell you how many. Uh, sound performances I've been to now which has been one man for three hours with one mixing desk twiddling buttons and knobs and making Mm -hmm. different noises which I have no context for you know I don't know that it's the sound of a mountain that he's pitched up or down that you know he recorded on the day that he you know discovered the meaning of life you know I've got nothing on I've got no emotional connection to these sounds and Mm -hmm. so for me you know connecting and I find the voice is my easiest tool to do that with uh, and, you know, engaging people with some kind of conversational dialogue and just being really explicit, you know, what are we talking about here? What is this about? You know, not through a wanky gallery text, basically, where we're telling people, you know, that this is, uh, is this how we must interpret things, but, you know, what's the subject matter? What's the debate? What's the discussion? Why is it relevant today? Um, yeah. I want to make art that means something to people that connects on some sort of an emotional level. I don't want to bombard people with sounds that they feel makes them, uh, more isolated from the experience of art than they were before going there. Hmm.
0: Yeah. Like, draw them in. Yeah.
1: Yeah. There's a place for everything, you know, um, and I guess we're all just trying to carve out what ours is.
0: Yeah. I've certainly found in recent years, like, the time spent in front of a DAW making music, like a bit like what you said there that like it's fun the process is fun of making those sounds but like the product is is not as fun i certainly found like with jamming with people doing electronic jams and jams as a band there is so much more fun to be had just interacting with people and playing with silly little tabletop toys than there is pouring over like production and and the finer details that only you will ever notice.
1: Maybe, but I also find that area really therapeutic. But, so the doing for me is always the fun part. But, you know, how can I let the audience or the public into the doing part? You know, and that doesn't mean that, you know, if you're running a, a sound workshop, you don't necessarily want to spend six hours teaching someone the ins and outs of logic and, you know, decibel levels, etc. Mm-hmm. You know, I find that really enjoyable to do. But that is never going to be the aim for me. But I think... The, you know, the fun part basically is the experience. You know, it's that fluxus level stuff. You know, the how is this? You know, a, a fun way of connecting with a sound, with the environment, with the world, with someone's voice, with an experience I had yesterday, with something that we're doing together right now. Uh, you know, and so how can you recreate that experience? Because that's the exciting part.
0: So you worked with Raw Sounds, doing music and media sessions in hospital and with people with mental health, and uh, you, you did um, something called Music To My Fears, which was a talk about um, mental health issues in music, with a band called Dream Wife, who... who uh, Participated, Yeah, can you explain a little bit about that?
1: Yeah, I, um, I manage a project called Raw Sounds, which is a music project specifically for people accessing secondary mental health care. And so that's people who have been referred from GPs into uh, community uh, mental health teams, occupational therapists and helping professionals. Uh, often people who have had a hospital admission because of mental health issues. And so, we take music onto hospital wards and we run quite an expansive programme of music workshops in our community music studios in Brixton. And uh, the idea is it's about access and it's about having community resource. Uh, a lot of community centres essentially look like a kind of church or village hall painted a stale green with a pool table and a computer from the 1980s <laughs> in it, you know, and that's a community resource, As you know, kind of dire times. Mm. And so it was a combination of we've got a really good high quality music studio, which is accessible to people in the community uh, and where they can come and feel valued as professional artists uh, and come and feel inspired to learn new skills. It's about, you know, belief in music as as, as a right for everyone who wants to participate should have an opportunity to participate. So, we do outreach on hospital wards and we bring people together really to challenge loneliness as well. Social mm-hmm. isolation is something that I think we've all experienced at some stage in our lives to some Definitely. degree. And it's yeah, one absolutely. of the most painful feelings. You know, the feeling of not only being alone, but also feeling like you'll always be alone because you'll never fully understand or connect with another human. Mm-hmm. You know, and that's a terrifying place to be. And we wanted to create a space where lots of people could come together and you know really f- foster a sense of acceptance and belonging through that shared experience of having been in that place um, and music is a great tool to bring people together to do that and it's also cool you know <laughs> so we kind of say come make some grime music we've got some studios we've got lots of rappers here we've got some good producers we've got big speakers so it's a place for people to come together and as part of that our funders comic relief one of our funders i should say invited us to uh, chair a panel discussion about music and mental health with some uh, artists, some of whom were called Dream Wife, who were some absolutely lovely uh, feminists uh, who are into social justice and politics and uh, definitely made some friends after that event.
0: Great. That, that's amazing that they were involved in that and they were like, interested in, and played a part in discuss- the discussion of mental health. Yeah, which, which is something that's quite prominent at the moment, isn't it? Like, that, that discussion, or, or, yeah, the discussion of it.
1: Yeah, absolutely, you know, we're finally able to talk about things which we should have been talking about for ages, but which have been under so many layers of stigma. Um, yeah, and I guess, you know, slowly over periods of time, it's still so far that we have to go, you know, I was talking to someone about the topic of suicide and the language that we use around suicide. It's taken from, we say, commit suicide, because suicide was a crime. Mm -hmm. Um, And, you know, if you had a failed attempt, you could be prosecuted, you know. And so we still use this language, which actually is highly stigmatised. We still talk about people who are suffering from um, mental ill health and things like that. And, uh, you know, it'd be really nice to move away from this kind of deeply uh, um, problematic language and... uh, ask people to define their experience however they want without being continuously labeled and fit in boxes.
0: Exactly and the, one a really good example of that is um, post-traumatic stress disorder PTSD um, because in after people like have gone to war so after people have gone to war in I think the 60s or 70s they called it shell shock so like the shell, yeah that was the object that created the problem like it's shell shock like you had shock from the shell and in i think there was another term in between shell shock and ptsd but essentially they're saying that the disorder is the person the person has created the or they have the disorder now so it's not to do with like the act of war like you know the owner the onus of the problem is now the person and not the act Mm. which is yeah really really twisted
1: yeah and it's funny to think that, you know, a kind of shell could be in some way worse than the absolutely horrific, you know, piles of bodies and friends dying and fearing for your life and, you know, all of that stuff.
0: Yeah. Yeah, I think there is an, in, there is an intermediate it. Like it. Like, they sort of softened it over the space of, sort of turned it round, the terms went straight back round. I mean, it's, it's horrible, really. But yeah, I think, I think there was a, th- a second term they had it to, like a second level. And then it was, um, yeah, disorder, mm-hmm. like you're not ordered properly, like mm-hmm. there's, there's something wrong with the sequence here, so there's a disorder. Yep. It's a bit, and I think in German they call it self-murder, isn't it? So it's called self-murder, so you are committing murder.
2: Yep.
1: Yeah. I'm hoping that we can start to have some more honest conversations about homelessness and also about the whole topic of drug addiction and alcoholism, which is still absolutely deeply stigmatised and still seen by some as being some kind of choice. Mm. Um, And so having more conversations, hopefully leading to better understanding and actually more empathy uh, in our communities. It's shocking to see services being slashed under austerity and uh, services can be slashed when there's no public empathy towards people's situation. Um, And so the more we build up public empathy, the more... Uh, hope we have of saving some services which are going to keep people alive Uh, and you know things like homelessness and drug and alcohol um issues are deeply misunderstood and not often uh talked about by the people who have lived that experience but more often by people who are making judgments or about that experience
0: exactly yeah and and homelessness is definitely a problem in Brighton um i yeah, early in the morning if I go out for a walk and stuff and I go through town, um, or pretty much all I see is homeless people and there's a lot of them. And, yeah, yeah, the conditions that they live in are incredible. And normally the default response from people saying is, oh, yeah, that was their choice. Most, most people who are homeless decide to live on the streets. Mm. And, yeah, like I, think, I think people now, maybe with the way the media portrays things, is like everything becomes very simple, like it's just good or it's bad. You know, that's a good person or that's a bad person. There's so many, like, intricacies within each case of all of those people that you can't say, like, they all just decided to be homeless and that's it. So they want to do that and I don't need to help because that's how they wanted to be, you know? Like, it's a really strange way of looking at it. It's
1: almost... Like Adam Curtis talks about in hyper-normalisation, that we have to simplify stories. that The media says that we can't handle complexity, and so you have to be either a goodie or a baddie. Yeah. Um, and uh, that's how all messaging is now designed.
0: Absolutely. Yeah. Um, I'm, I'm a huge fan of Adam Curtis from the late 90s. Do you know he started off on... Um, he was he was looking he was the videotape guy for Esther Anson's That's Life or this is yeah That's Life. Oh. So he would go through back through the BBC archives or the ITV archives looking for footage for that program, and that's how he got started as a documentary maker because he had access to everything. And he was like, he started making documentaries, and he makes the best the best stuff ever. Bitter Lakes probably one of my favourite documentaries of all time, even though it's massively depressing. It's wonderful at the same time.
1: My favorite thing to do when I get the flu is uh, make a den, turn <laughs> on Adam Curtis, and order Indian takeaway. It's just a combination of curry and getting good and depressed, basically. You know, because it wipes away self pity when you think about all the horrible other things that are happening in the world, doesn't it? That's
0: true. Is that why it feels good? I do the same thing. Like sometimes, if I'm yeah, if I'm really yeah, if I'm not in a good shape, I'll put on Adam Curtis and be like, "Fuck yeah, he knows what's going on," you know, That'd like
1: agree. my life doesn't matter. Agreed. And there's a, there's a great Romanian philosopher that I was reading recently and he, he's, a, he's a pessimist. Uh, like, to, to the worst degree, nothing means anything, etc. But I find that he's, he's a pessimist in a hopeful way because, you know, if you decide that there's nothing that you can do to change this corrupt society and so you start spending all of your time and all of your effort in doing so, then actually that's quite freeing in many ways, you know, if you accept the fact that actually things are bad and we are doomed you know, then you can go, come on, we're living. And, uh, you know, not that I think that personal freedom is necessarily you know, <laughs> <laughs> the most ethical way to live and certainly a way that I could live, but I thought it was an entertaining viewpoint.
0: Definitely. I think um, Darren, Brown, he, Darren Brown wrote a book um, mm. about stoicism called Happy, which is brilliant about not worrying about the things that you can't control or not trying to change the things you can't control like, controlling your thoughts and your actions is essentially all you can really do. And, um, yeah, it's a really great book on, on attitudes to, um, yeah, just life in general. I found it really, really great, and it relieved a lot of my stress and pressure that I felt from worrying about, why is that guy doing that? Like, what's that person doing? Or, you know, all of that stuff becomes irrelevant because it's out of your control. Yeah, it's a good book, that. I enjoyed it. Cool, so you've done, um, whereabouts has your work taken you? Because you, obviously you've worked, you've done stuff with the Tate Gallery, we talked about your stuff in Cambridge. Whereabouts, where's your work taken
2: you?
1: went to Barrow in Furnace the other day to do a residency. I lived and worked and ate and slept with 12 other artists. Um, and Barrow is a fascinating place because it's... Uh, company town where BAE Systems create nuclear submarines
2: Right, wow.
1: and so you're walking around a town where BAE Systems warehouses tower above you and you walk towards the sea and there's one of the submarines um, wow. so I spent a week there uh, it was lovely to be in Cumbria and get to know a lot bit about uh, artists working in Cumbria, walked around the Lake District with some very cool people and um, and made some work about uh, the language that we use to describe nuclear submarines and more specifically the name called the vanguard class submarine and the duality of the definition of vanguard as a kind of group of people at the forefront of some invention or as a uh, foremost part of an advancing naval fleet. So I interviewed people about what they felt about uh, vanguardism um, and looked for the vanguards in the town.
0: Yeah, and I read that you said about it, you, you didn't want, you had to be quite, um, uh, like you had to be quite delicate with the subject matter because you knew a lot of the people you were interviewing had like relatives who worked there and it was quite embedded in, in that community.
1: Absolutely, you know, it's very easy to go into a town and judge that, you know, everyone's living in a morally unacceptable way <laughs> because they're beyond the payroll of BAU systems, but, you know, if you're born in Barrow and Furnace, you're going to have a very different perspective on that, you know, as uh, limited options for employment, and mm-hmm. uh, actually many people do believe that we need a independent strategic nuclear deterrent, that's an view that I share. That um, until, uh, in fact, trade unions start to support a defence diversification agency and start to put forward proposals for how we're going to transfer jobs to uh, not be creating things that we think will actually bring detriment to our planet rather than positive outcomes, until people start to talk about how we move those jobs into more ethical industries, and uh, we can't go there and judge. Hmm.
0: Yeah, um, I think the Adam Curtis documentary, "The Trap," the first episode of "The Trap" is called "Fuck You, Buddy," and it's about game theory and it's yeah John Nash's idea that if you think I have nuclear weapons, then you should have nuclear weapons, and it goes down to some really small analogy of like two guys and one of them's got jewelry and one of them's got the money, and the best thing that you can do instead of swapping them is to take both. Uh, yeah. Mm. Yeah, that, that was really cool. And so, what did you? What sort of things did you do practically while you were there? What?
1: Uh, I bowled around basically in a, one of the other artist's cars, and we saw fireworks and recorded them, and we did some field recordings at the docks, and we couldn't get anywhere near the submarines. I don't know why. I kind of had this picture in my mind of putting a contact mic on a submarine. <laughs> so that was never going to happen. Very heavily guarded, um, and uh, but I went to find the. A local amateur radio society and there were some people there who had worked uh, on the submarines and they didn't give me all the dirt that I hoped but they did tell me a little bit about how submarines communicate uh, and the different codes that they use so I produced a zine and an audio work using some of these recordings but it was really my usual practice of going to a place collecting voices speaking Mm -hmm. to people and seeing what they had to say and then creating a kind of audio collage of this.
0: Cool, I think some of those zines are online, aren't they? There's yeah. a co- some of them on your website there at the bottom.
2: Yeah. Yeah, cool. Yeah.
0: You also had something in New Delhi, virtual voices, which was an installation, right?
1: It did, yeah. It was something I made with Lisa Hall. We we were interested in the digital voices that we hear, so train operators, um, checkout desks, and uh, you know that voice that says, "Do you have a member dividend card?" <laughs> <laughs> and we did a bit of a survey where we um, listened to. Where these voices appear and the content of their messaging, and we found that there was uh, quite a strong divide in the gender roles of the digital workers, or digital voices, right. um, and how women were in information-giving roles and men were there to give instructions and warnings. You know, if you see something that doesn't look right, it's in a male voice.
0: Listen to me, I'm a man. <laughs> um, completely, <laughs>
1: completely, and also how you know white and middle class and middle England all these voices are. And so we did a survey of these voices, and we wrote a piece, and we merged our voices into one digital amalgamated voice, text-to-speech. And then we did some field recordings, and we collaged this together into an eight-channel work, where you're stood between eight digital voices, which are talking to you about themselves. Because uh, we found it strange to think that this automated voice doesn't have a body, but it has many voices, which stretch out for millions of miles. Um, and the bizarre experience of what the voice artists must feel when they go to the co-op and they hear their own voice a thousand mm. times. Yeah. And um, how we can change these voices, and you know the, the danger of having such a lack of representation so standardised and rolled out, we were before making this work a conference organised by Chris App. And they, it was about the digital voices and feminism. And one of the things that I learned there was that the voice of Stephen Hawking that we all recognise is also given to small children because it's actually one of a very limited sound database of voices uh, which are employed with this technology for people who have lost the ability to speak. And so you will see seven-year-old girls who have this voice. Right. And it really made me think a lot about how much my identity is tied up with my voice. And if I woke up one day and my voice sounded different, then it would be just as weird to me as if I would woken up with someone else's nose or <laughs> Kafka so as though I'd, you know, woken up with a large beetle. <laughs> <laughs> or my nose, as in Goggle, had taken off and got a higher position in my bureau than me. <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah, that is an interesting one. I have never pondered what would happen if I woke up with someone else's voice, but yeah, it would be weird, wouldn't it? Although, like, when you hear yourself recorded for this first time, when you're not accustomed to recording it, it's the worst thing you've ever heard in your life, isn't it?
1: Yes. Yes, that's where I discovered, basically, my lispy voice and my lack of tease. (laughs) But I think it's, you know, it's just a process of, you know, you spend your entire teenage years getting used to what your face looks like. You know, you examine yourself and you poke it and you prod it and your nose extends and, you know, you get different bony facial features. And it takes you a long time to get used to how you look. And I think it's the same with the voice, isn't it? Yeah, it's almost like we have a later day teenage experience or what we do because we're the age where we didn't always hear our digital recorded voices maybe yeah like a process of you know relearning to accepting new part of ourselves that we hadn't examined before
0: definitely you're like well I have no gravitas whatsoever <laughs> <laughs> I'm not even listening to myself <laughs>
1: No, but, you know, many other things, you know, many other positive can't all sound like Jon Snow. (laughs) Neither should we. How awful would it be if everyone did sound like Jon Snow, nice as his voice is?
0: It was funny actually on the last podcast with Don Morley. He, he's a uh, sound engineer who worked on um, Amy Winehouse Back to Black and Version. And he had a really deep voice. And I just, when I was listening back to a corner, I was like, sounds like he's talking to a little girl. <laughs> it was so like the relationship of our two voices was so different. I was like, I wonder if anyone else is going to notice that or it's just me. <laughs> yeah, you get used to it eventually. Cool. So there's there's a lot of um, altruism in what you do, isn't there? You know, like helping people.
1: Well, I think it helps me probably more than it helps them. Do you think so? I think that community is about exchange, isn't it? You know, and um, I couldn't survive without community. I'm obsessed with community. I need to feel a sense of belonging for my own mental health and in order to feel connected to the world. So, mm-hmm. um, you know, uh, working with people and being part of a group is something that makes me feel good and that's what I get out of doing this work and so you know if it's also a benefit to someone else then I see that as a fair swap
0: definitely absolutely yep. yeah it's like I think when people uh you know people always say like oh, doing voluntary work's really good for you it's it's that's one of those like mutually mutually beneficial isn't it absolutely. like engaging with other people and yeah, increased levels of empathy I was gonna say like when you're talking about empathy like what do you think why do you think there is a decline in empathy or or, or apparent selfish why had, why do you think that that like when we we're talking about homeless people and we we're talking about like having empathy we need to increase levels of empathy do you, why do you think we've got to a point where people are thinking about themselves more than they possibly
2: should
1: I think this is just social conditioning I don't think that any child is born selfish and thinking only of themselves you know they might uh, struggle to share things sometimes but it's a process of learning and unfortunately all of the structures that we have in society are trying to get us to learn to be a certain way Um, you know schools and we introduce competition very early on you have to Uh, you know be the best in your class or you have to uh, uh, cram for exams and these structures of learning produce the kinds of people that we are Um, people who absorb and repeat information rather than learn to question and think critically Mm -hmm. so then when we you know are 40 and we read a newspaper you know if we've complied with this structure of socialization that has been designed for us then, you know, absolutely, we might read something with a lack of empathy because that's who we've been taught to be.
2: Definitely, Um, definitely.
1: I think this is shaken up, though, by people who have profound experiences, you know, people who have suffered trauma, people who have watched someone close to them uh, go through a challenging experience, and that really opens our eyes, which is why I think that we aren't selfish people because we do have that depth of understanding about... um, the unmanageability of our emotions and pain.
2: Hmm.
0: So you've also been doing some lectures at Goldsmiths and the V&A?
1: Yeah, yeah, I get invited to do lectures sometimes. I really enjoy talking to students and I did a lecture at Goldsmiths. The other day, I don't know if the students enjoyed it, I don't think they really did, but I loved doing it. <laughs> so, <opportunity>, That's fine. <laughs> an opportunity to speak about the thing that I love, which is social practice. Mm-hmm. so i did a lecture about community arts and social practice and the distinctions between them i think probably you know this would have been better suited to a different course but the um i hope that i you know giving lectures to people who don't necessarily um, have the same or share the passion for the subject i think is more useful because then you're Hopefully, sharing something that you're very passionate about with someone who' never heard of that before, you know, and has previously never been exposed to that, and has no, in, you know, had no previous interest to it. Yeah. You know, so if that sparked the attention or the interest of one person, then job done. You know, success. But I lost doing it, and hopefully <laughs> that came across.
0: Brilliant. Yeah, maybe it sparked something that's like, well, I I don't really have an opinion on what she's saying, and I, you know, like, what is my opinion on it? Like challenging, challenging the way people think about stuff that's cool that's amazing and uh, did you have any like what, what who were you talking to when you did those lectures?
1: Uh, students of MA Cultural Policy and Arts Administration at Goldsmiths did a lecture other day in Brighton for the BA digital music and sound art course um, did a lecture at VNA for their uh, Create Insights program um, just recently did some work with Tate and a collaboration they have with Tent, which is a gallery in Rotterdam. We're going to Rotterdam at the end of the month to go and launch a publication called Where Does Culture Happen? Where mm-hmm. we are talking about how culture doesn't just happen within the places which formally claim to own culture and distribute it according to their own uh, values and tastes. But looking at who's producing culture and where, I made a collage for a... Um, a double page spread in the publication, which is about to be launched, and I'm going to go and run some workshops around that in Rotterdam.
0: Awesome! Wow, Rotterdam's a great place. I've never been. Yeah, it used to be one of the biggest ports in Europe. It used to be like a real, a real hub. Um, it's the birthplace of Gabba as well. I'm sure you know what Gabra is. Of course,
1: I do. <laughs> <laughs> it's the birthplace of Gabba Yeah. Excellent. They're very
0: proud of it. I remember talking to some Dutch people at a party a few years ago and like oh yeah D- you're Dutch oh, you like you must like Gabba then and they were so offended I thought like I'm sure I've spoken to Dutch people in the, you know in the past and they were like yeah yeah Gabba comes from our country yeah 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 but these people like don't talk to us about Gabba <laughs> They're
1: like going to Sweden and saying you must like Abba <laughs>
0: yeah I guess so yeah Abba. first thing that comes into my mind when I speak to a Dutch person Cool, and so um, what sort of thing are you working on at the moment? Like, what sort of things are you up to at the moment?
1: Um, I've done so much. I've been through such an intense working period recently that I actually am just looking forward to doing a bit of a bit less um, just whilst I get my brain back together often over the next couple of months. But having said that, actually, <laughs> I'm uh, working on Sound Camp, which is an annual festival to celebrate International Dawn Chorus Day. Wow. So we'll be doing a 24-hour live broadcast of collected streams from around the world, which will be live streamed uh, where you can hear the dawn chorus in different parts of the world. And we'll be going, moving through all the time zones. That's amazing. And at the same time, we'll be camping in a field with bonfires and sound artists doing performances and installations and lectures. So that's an annual event, and that's coming up in May.
2: That's really cool. Uh,
1: so yes, definitely some work on that. I just got invited to join a sort of sound art education audio podcast radio producers a collective that is just talking about maybe starting to do some free workshops and thinking about sound in a more expensive way what else am I up really? to you? lots of like little connections and things which might turn out to be nothing it might turn out to be something
0: yeah absolutely yeah I, I feel like that's, that's a question I don't really like asking people because I know when people ask me that and like uh, don't put pressure on me. I don't need to constantly do things. But yeah. I guess it's something that ends up coming out of my mouth in an in an interview situation. Like yeah. what are you up to now and what you're doing For in sure. the future.
1: I'd like to just make something. You know, I've been because I've been doing so much work, which has been within a certain framework. It's nice to think that you know this residency is uh, coming to an end, and now maybe I can have a little bit more time just to think about what do I want to make next. You know, what's the next area of interest? Yeah, Um,
0: like let those thoughts just propagate and percolate. and
1: Yeah, have a bit of time for reflective practice as well. Mm. Uh, should listen
0: to some soundscapes, some boring
1: soundscapes. (laughs) (laughs) Go on some sound walks, you know? Just enjoy being in the world, you know? Mm. Especially as I'm someone with a parent commitment to (laughs) (laughs) anti-work.
0: Great, well, um, it's been really great to talk to you. Thanks
1: for
0: speaking to me. Thanks for coming. I really enjoyed uh, speaking to Hannah. It was a lot of fun. And um, we didn't really talk about music or sound as much as is normal on my podcast, but uh, I really enjoyed speaking about sort of the global happenings, the capitalism and um, the dark side of our society, which people don't normally talk about. She was a lovely girl, I would probably like to interview her again and not even talk about sound or music, but let's save that for another day. Okay, next month I'm speaking to a DJ and producer who has remixed prolifically for some some really big artists and was quite instrumental in a club night in London um, a few years back. So that's coming up next time on episode number 16, which will be out in April. Thank you very much for listening. I am Madeira,
2: and I'll see you soon. Goodbye.